0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by listeners like you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And you know, around the world, there are thousands of foods and food traditions that have been lost throughout history and are in danger, or if they're not lost, they're in danger of becoming lost. The Arc of Taste, which is part of Slow Food International, has been documenting many of these since the late 90s. And one need not travel to the remote ends of the world to discover these endangered foods. My guest today took a look, a close look, at some of the endangered foods and food traditions right here in America to learn their backstory, what's happening, and how we might be able to help. My guest is Sarah Lohman. She's an American historian specializing in the history of food and, in her own words, a historic gastronomist. She's the author of the book Eight Flavors. The Untold Story of American Cuisine, and numerous articles. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, as well as on All Things Considered, and CNN, and Gimlet and um, Gimlet Media, and NHK Japan. Sarah is a frequent lecturer and a columnist at Gastro Obscura. She's based in Las Vegas, where she is now co-host of the Las Vegas CityCast podcast, Sarah has a new book out, which has just been released by W.W. W. Norton & Son entitled Endangered Eating, America's Vanishing Foods. And I'm so pleased to have her join me today to talk about it. Welcome, Sarah.
2: Linda, it's been ages. It's such yeah. a pleasure.
1: It's been a few years, I must say. I and mean, Sarah, you Sarah has been a frequent guest on A Taste of the Past. Just look her up and listen to the older shows; they were all <laughs> <I'm> great. <there. laughs> uh, you know this. I really enjoyed the book, and what makes it so special is your st- storytelling. And you tell great stories. I've always known that, but this you now you write great stories as well, and the storytelling from that we learn not only about the food and the food traditions that are in danger of being lost but we learn about the history of the people behind the food and so you really it puts us in touch with the people you did such a great job with that is that is that what made you decide to write the book why why did you decide to take on this
2: this Sure. Well, of course, we know that, you know, food isn't, it's connected to people, you know, it's not detached from that. And so I I find it uh, impossible to talk about food without, in this case, talking about the cultures that these different ingredients are uh, connected to. Um, But the You know, the one inspiration point for me, how this all started and I went down the rabbit hole is someone sent me an article from BBC Travel, and I wish I could remember who, because I would certainly credit them. Um, But the article was about what's known as the rarest pasta on the planet. And that's called Su Filindeu and Su Filandeu is made by maybe six women in Sardinia. And if you want to try it, you have to complete a 37-kilometer pilgrimage over the mountains of Sardinia, and that only happens twice a year. And, um, you know, the article, too, was really about that this recipe has been passed down through the women of the same family for hundreds of years until there was barely anyone that could make it. So uh, one woman said, okay, we've got to do something if we're going to preserve this food. And one of the steps was getting it on the Arc of Taste. And the Arc of Taste is sort of an online encyclopedic reference that is put together by Slow Food International of these exceedingly rare foods and ingredients like Sufi Lindeyu. And I went down the rabbit hole when I realized that there was an American list specific to America, broken up into different regions. And I just began finding these wonderful stories behind foods. And of course, I had to go seek them out. So that's how this all started.
1: Huh. Interesting. And the arc of taste. David Shields was really yeah. instrumental in putting it together. And I was glad to see uh, reading the book that you were that you were able to connect with him. He's terrific.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So David, he uh, worked with uh, the founder of Anson Mills, Glen. No. What is this? Do you remember his name, Linda? No. No. It's just falling out of my head. Okay. So let me just take that again. So David Shields was. Um, he got involved with the arc of taste. He wasn't a food historian until about. Twenty years ago, which I know, okay, that's longer than I've been a food historian. But you know, he was doing other pieces of research, and uh, the man who ended up founding Anson Mills, which is, um, I'm sure you've heard of them, Linda. You know, they work a lot with heirloom grains, and in some cases, lost and rediscovered grains, and mm-hmm. selling those flowers. And but the idea was even bigger than that. Um, that David was asked to first research the foods that were missing from, in this case, um, the Carolina Rice Kitchen. So basically low country cuisine and all of the ingredients surrounding the core ingredient of Carolina gold rice, which has been recovered. And David told me, he kind of thought, yeah, I'm going to research for a, six months and then turn it in. And then, you know, maybe I'll get some free dinners out of it or something. And yeah, he'd been working on this for almost 20 years when I talked to him. So it became this process. Of, of first identifying what was missing and then going out and finding it and see if we can get it back in the ground.
1: And and I commend you on the work because he's done great work and he continued with a lot of other grains and foods. Um, and there is a, uh, what do I say, uh, a system of, well, different points of for. Qualify for selection. Can you describe what people look for when, in order for a food to, uh, a lost food or a food that's in danger to be uh, nominated or put on the arc of taste?
2: Sure, sure. And of course, I'm going to paraphrase a bit because I'm not a member of Slow Foods. And if people want more specifics, they can go to both the Slow Food website and the Arc of Taste for America and the world too. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there's also been a lot of debate about what should go on this list and how it should be categorized. Because certainly this list started in Italy where, you know, in some cases, there's been pasta made in the same place for hundreds of years. Um, But here in America, you know, we can talk about indigenous foods, which are a big part of the arc too, but we are also such a migrant and immigrant culture as well. So, you know, we're a a younger country in terms of the colonialism sense. So how do we incorporate those foods? So in general, it's agreed that these foods should be delicious, but of course that is definitely a matter of perspective, right? Right. So perhaps it's easier to say that is a food that is valued by a certain culture that's important to a certain culture. It's also important that these foods can be grown or raised by any, That they are not um, uh, copyrighted in any way or owned by anyone. That they're free for all, um, and that they should be unique and distinctive too.
1: Mm, Right, and not certainly not uh, you know a a process. They should be you want to say natural. You said clean and clean, clean and free, and can be grown.
2: clean. Yeah. And of course it all gets complicated too, because, um, you know, certainly pasta is a processed food, right? It's not a pure ingredient. So this is why there's just ongoing debate. And certainly even though Slow Food sort of offers these, these four directives, you know, we don't necessarily stick to them because it's it's all up for debate. <laughs> right. is, it can be very hard uh, to define in these ways.
1: Well, and as you mentioned, the food traditions, like the the women who make that pasta, it's almost like lace. I mean, this pasta from Sardinia, yeah. it's unbelievable.
2: Yeah. The uh, sufi lindeo, I should say, translates to the threads of God. Yes, okay. Thank you for that, because I,
1: mm-hmm. I was just going to mention, I, I forgot what it meant, but um, that that is more of a tradition than, as you said, rather than an actual food. And that... Uh, what and what other traditions can you think of that were the more uh, practices or traditions in a community or or a region as opposed to an actual food?
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. I was really drawn to the more ephemeral moments too, and one of those is Salish reef net fishing. Oh, now, yeah. uh, it has been redefined in an arc of taste overhaul as Salish reef net caught fish because they are trying to make it about the the thickness of things. <laughs> but in a way, it reminded me that it is important to preserve the process as much as it is the food. Right. So this is a fishing technique from the way north Puget Sound. That's where the Salish Sea is. It crosses the border between the United States and Canada. And it is a technique invented by the Salish peoples who are indigenous peoples that lived on the sound as opposed to a river. So they invented salmon fishing techniques that worked out in open waters. So this is a brilliant technique. It's probably 10,000 years old. It involves two stationary platforms or historically two canoes and a net is hung between the two of them. And then a part of it is called the reef. And the reef at one end attaches to the net strung between the canoes. And at the other end attaches to the bottom of the floor of the sound. Okay. The bottom of the sound. Hmm. And they park this, uh, set in the route, in the path of schooling salmon. So where they're coming from the salt water to swim into the freshwater rivers to eventually go spawn. And it's a very simple technique. Someone looks for a school of fish to come swimming up that reef, Um, It's often decorated with ribbons or traditionally blades of grass so that it just looks like it's the bottom of the sound covered with seagrasses. So the salmon swim up that uh, tilt, that slant. They end up in the net. And when the spotter sees them coming at the net, they give a signal to pull the net above the boat, onto the boat. And then on the modern reef net gears, the fish are then pulled into a live well where basically they're calmed down before they're bled out. It's a very humane method too because traditional fishing methods um, you know, allow the fish to suffocate on deck or put them directly on ice. And that kind of stress actually makes the, the salmon taste not good. Hmm. So these fish are handled very delicately. They come to market looking very beautiful. The meat tastes delicious. And most importantly, since they're hauled on deck live, it's very easy to sort out protected salmon species. That happened a couple times in the, the two days that I volunteered on one of these reef net gears that we pulled up a chinook or a uh, king salmon and we just scooped them out of the live well and sent them on their way to spawn.
1: Interesting. Wow. And why do you think that this uh, this method is starting to fade?
2: Well, has faded, really. I mean, even 50 years ago, there were dozens of these reef net gears all over the Sound. And today there are 11 or 12 that are currently acted in just one spot off of Lummy Island. And out of those 11 or 12, 90% of them are owned by white fishers as opposed to the indigenous people who created this fishing method. They were pushed out of reef, nest, reef net fishing at the turn of the 20th century. I mean, if we're talking 200 years ago, before white settlers come to the area, there were hundreds, if not thousands of these reef net gears all over the Sound. So it's important to um, see this tradition expand because Mm -hmm. it is so good for the uh, protected salmon populations, but also there needs to be more effort to return this fishing system to the hands of indigenous people and mm-hmm. you know the answer to a lot of these is just money either buying the product or in this case donating to Lummi Island Wild that's L U M M I Lummi Island Wild, who is the fishing collective that preserves and protects this style of fishing, is a great advocate for it, and also has uh, indigenous fish uh, reef net fishers um, on their board too. So it's also helping to return this system to indigenous peoples.
1: Right. I mean, there are so many factors. Obviously, and a loaded question when I said, "Why do you think that these, you know, that it's being lost?" It's you know, there's so many factors involved in a lot of these food practices and, and food traditions. And as you mentioned, you know, the indigenous people, not only were, were, you know, there just were fewer of them allowed to fish too. So that was, that was a problem that certainly yeah. contributes to it.
2: And people from the Pacific Northwest will know the Bolt decision, um, which, Oh, I mean, it, I'm, what's the simplest version Basically, we made a treaty with the Salish people. It said that their fishing rights were protected, we meaning the American government. um, But the state of Washington, you know, systematically protected white fishers, not indigenous fishers, and persecuted the indigenous fishers, often, um, you know, uh, confiscating their fishing gear, too. Um, And then in the 1970s, the the indigenous peoples of the Puget Sound sued. And I'm so glad they did. It went all the way, it went first to the state court and then the Supreme Court, and they won, and they won rights to fishing, basically above white fishers, because it was guaranteed in treaty rights, and that is the supreme law of the land. So Mm -hmm. the Bolt decision began to return fishing rights to the indigenous peoples. But by that point, there had already been so much damage done in terms of indigenous peoples not having um, the economic opportunity to get together their own fishing gears too. So there is still much that could be done there and that local organizations are working to do.
1: Right. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's just a a wonderful story. Once again, a wonderful story and wonderful work. And what it points out too, is that the work that you did, you actually got out there and worked with the people fished with the oh, people heck yeah. yeah i mean you were <laughs> they're picking apples and, and
0: yeah <laughs> digging
1: absolutely. up peanuts and, uh, i'm not
2: going to show up especially in an indigenous culture and just stand around and expect you know people to serve me um you know I, as you know linda too when you're researching and writing when you're when you're doing journalism like this you're asking people to allow you into their lives right. to show you a slice of something they're passionate about and that takes a lot of trust building and again as as, you know a white person showing up in indigenous communities there needs to be a lot of trust building there there's every reason for someone not to want me in their community so the least i can do is help you know and i love a task i love to be busy um so i always tried to get out there and you know really work and be in it because i also think that gives me a deeper understanding of these ingredients so yeah i was out there on those fishing gears i was hauling nets in i was bleeding fish i worked for about eight hours. And then funnily, the next day, I had a red eye that night in New York City, and I performed the next night. And my left hand, which was the hand, okay, so I'm sorry, if this gets a little graphic for everybody. But okay. when, <laughs> when salmon are um, killed, or in this process, at least the kind of humane way to do it is to break one of their major arteries under their gills. So they're, they're bleeding out, and they're very relaxed, they're not suffocating. And so you kind of hold the salmon with your right hand, you have to grab it with your hands out of the live well. You have to hold it with your right hand and then you reach under their gills and pull this artery. My like pinching, grips, my thumbs and forefingers on both hands were in- incredibly swollen the next mm. day from doing this repeated action and using muscles that like I don't normally use, you right, know? Right. Um, and of course I was scratched and sunburned. And before I got on that red-eyed in New York, I couldn't even have a shower. So I basically got off the boat, got to land, um, used wet wipes to clean fish stuff off of me, <laughs> changed my clothes and got on the plane and just, you know, said, I'm sorry to whoever I was sitting next to.
1: <laughs> yes. I did just eat a barrel of fish, right? sorry. <laughs> well,
2: well as nothing I could do. No, sorry. Fun experience.
1: Uh, you know, there, there were so many of these, um, these stories and once again, it's the, you're, you know, you're telling the story of, of what you did. You really, you know, you know, kept that all documented so well. And, I looked at the list. How did you choose how did you let's say eliminate so many yeah. of the other foods, but how did you choose just these? I know you wrote a book, you know, your other your first book was um the eight tastes of you know uh what was it eight eight
2: flavors, eight flavors? Right. Right. American cuisine. Right. Yeah. And
1: now here we have you didn't say it in the title, but I did happen to count, and there were eight in particular that you I went know,
2: in I detail. Didn't say it <laughs> that way, it really just sort of fell into place. And to be fair, I actually do talk about um, two more in the yes. introduction and the conclusion. Right, but, I didn't. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I ended up, you know, putting those in in those places because they were just shorter stories. So, um, I mean, it just sort of worked out in terms of when I looked at the American list, which has hundreds of uh, listings. There were just certain stories. That I could tell there was something deeper there. They were really culturally important foods, and um, I basically broke everything up into eight regions. The the one as the arc of taste does too. Mm-hmm. The one region that I didn't get to um, have have a chapter of its own was sort of uh, the Central Plains area. But I did in the filet powder uh, go end up going into Oklahoma, and I had originally planned uh, a a chapter. But you know sometimes when you you get the sense that there's a story behind something, but occasionally I would start pulling those threads and they just led to nowhere. Um, so I ended up sort of a rearranging things and cutting things back too. And it just ended up being eight. I guess it's my lucky number.
1: Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it works very well too, because I think after a while too, in telling these stories, the reader, um, you know, will get, Well, not all readers, but some readers, you know, if you're really going into depth about each of these foods and then what's happening there, you know, you can get burned out on reading too many of them. I think you just keep it that way where you leave the reader wanting to know a little more. Wanting Good. to know more about other foods, I think.
2: Because I also sort of get burned out on like a single deep dive into one single topic. Mm-hmm, I'm, mm-hmm. I I kind of get bored. Like I like to, to move my attention around too. And certainly I made a lot more work for myself. I think I counted that I read 65 books to create this book in addition to the in-person research and interviews that I did, um, which even now seems crazy. I really took on a big project, but I sort of wanted to, and it was important to me to do the best job i possibly could and research every angle to tell these stories
1: right well you know there are so many great stories i'm not going to tell everybody because they've got to go out and buy the book of course but um but uh, you're right i do want to talk about a couple others and um some more action that maybe we can take but we're going to take a brief break so as soon as we come back i'll be talking with sarah Loman about more endangered eating so stay tuned
0: Hi listeners, we wanted to let you know that Heritage Radio Network's Julia Child Fellowship application is now open. The fellowship offers an enriching experience for aspiring food writers and journalists who share our passion for food systems change. The fellowship is a great way to progress in the field of food journalism and digital media and will start in early January 2024. This fellowship will provide participants with hands-on experience, mentorship, and access to an extensive network of industry professionals. The application deadline is November 27, 2023. Check out heritageradionetwork.org and click on the Julia Child Foundation Writing Fellowship link to learn more. If you or someone you know has interest in food studies and journalism, this might be a great fit. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and check out the application today. Thank you.
1: Hi, we're back and I'm speaking with Sarah Lohman and her new book is called Endangered Eating. America's vanishing foods. You know, Sarah, when we think about vanishing foods, it's not really vanishing. Well, they are vanishing. I mean, they're but if we don't keep up the practice, they, they will be lost. And and I guess you look at even just the way families, well, I'm a lot older than you, so I could go back and I could <laughs> say, you look at how we used mm-hmm. to eat, how families you know, back in the day used to eat, uh, things we ate, how we ate them, and that's, that's gone. That's lost. That It's not, it wasn't an important one to make a list like the arc of taste, but you know, you just, my mind just got to, you know, to reeling about lost foods, lost practices. And, and it's certainly understandable that, that there are so many foods. Well, something I think everyone can identify with, um, you do a, a, a chapter on heirloom cider apples. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's something we all know. More and more apples are being discovered or found or identified and some sadly lost. So tell, tell
2: me a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, it really surprises people. You know, when you think about how many apples you see at the grocery store, how many varieties, or even at a really good orchard, you know, in your grocery store, maybe you see five or six at a great orchard, uh, one or two dozen. Um, We grow about 100 varieties of apples in America today. But there was a survey done right at the turn of the 20th century, and it counted 14,000 unique American apples. So that is a pretty massive, loss of genetic information and culture. And a lot of that is because in the 18th and 19th century, until the mid-19th century, we were a big cider drinking culture. And of course, when I say that, I mean hard cider, not sweet cider, fermented apple juice. Um, And then a couple of things changed. You know, beer became more popular. The temperance movement led to prohibition. And then in the 20s and 30s, you know, the apples really did have this um, connection to, um, to, to alcohol. They were really associated with drinking. And so there was a rebrand, the, you know, Apple Commodities Association or whatever said, let's associate them with health. They created that, um, you know we still know it today an apple a day keeps the doctor away that was created to basically push back against like apples are for drinking Mm -hmm. um but with all of these shifts to dessert apples and to beer and to not drinking at all it means that we lost an incredible number of apples that were used exclusively for cider making so the process of rediscovery is because um, the cider industry has increased tenfold in ten years about a decade ago there were 10 cideries and now we have over a thousand. And part of this, now that these apples are being put to use again, is that there are apple hunters out there, individuals and organizations asking people to look a little bit more closely at the woods around their homes and report any old, you know, feral apple trees because they could be a long lost heirloom variety.
1: Right. Right. And the problem is so many of those trees, I know I have a couple on a, on a, property I own upstate. And um, some of them are so old. I mean, they're like these you know, straggly, witchy looking tall yes. trees that haven't been pruned. And and maybe yes. once in a while, there's a branch where there's an apple <laughs> once yes. every two or three years, you know? But
2: I mean, in a way, it doesn't matter because, I mean, in the book, I tell the story of the rediscovery of an apple that was thought to be long lost. The trees themselves were planted in the 1850s. So they're coming up on 200 years old here. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like 175 years old. And yeah, they produced maybe just a couple apples every year, but more importantly, they were producing scion wood. And that is the sort of green growth that can be cut and then can be propagated, can be um, grafted onto rootstock. So, you know, it doesn't even matter if the, the Old trees are producing apples anymore. I mean, it helps in identification. It's they need to be producing grafting material, and luckily, these old trees—these were Povichon apple trees—that were an incredibly famous apple from the Newark, New Jersey area. And luckily, they were still producing this green wood, and so they've been grafted and restored.
1: That's that's great. I mean, it's just you know, who would think that? Well, it's an old tree. Just take it down. Can't do anything with it. But if it is producing that you know, golden russet apple that, you know, nobody has seen before,
2: you know, you never know. Yeah, it could be an incredibly, um, maybe not financially valuable, but value to people who who care about it, value to our story as Americans. So I, I mean, as soon as I began scrolling through the arc of taste, I already began to see the world around me a little differently i write about that in the first chapter where i was just driving through where i was living in rural ohio and suddenly saw a field full of texas longhorn cattle which are an even though they're a state symbol of texas they're an incredibly rare breed and i certainly didn't expect to see them in ohio so with the apple chapter you know now i'm n- noticing trees wherever they are it's like they pop out to me so it's just changed the way i look at the world
1: yeah well, one thing you had to go a little further to find and look, and not just see in in a, a local field, and, and certainly not in Ohio necessarily. And that was and which I loved was talking about wild rice, and I then I'm going to let everyone you know discover their own. But wild rice, I mean, that's something that you know I know I've seen other documentary shows on it, and but nobody really thinks about wild rice and the harvesting, the planting, the the culture, the background. Um. And that's all from the indigenous uh, peoples.
2: Yes. I mean, of course, people are shocked that in the first place, when I tell them wild rice is not actually rice, (laughs) it kind of looks like rice, but its closest relative is corn. And you can't really see that in the grain. But when you see the plant, a wild rice stalk kind of looks like a very skinny corn stalk. The leaves are similar. The flowers are similar. So it's not Asiatic rice. It is indigenous to the United States. It is a wild food and indigenous peoples believe that it should not be planted. Although the harvesting process, which involves tapping the blades to release ripe grains, also means that some of those grains escape the boat and head back into the water to plant themselves. But also for most people who live outside of the upper Midwest, what you're buying at the grocery store is probably not real wild rice. If the rice is black and has universally kind of long, uniform, long grains, that is actually what's known as cultivated wild rice. It's wild rice that has been selectively bred, planted in patties and is harvested by machines. And it's not the true food. And as a matter of fact, you know, some indigenous indigenous nations grow it for sale, but others feel like it's really not right that this food is a gift from God. It's available to everyone. And it goes like against their faith and idea of the world that it it should be tampered with. But I have to say, you know, you kind of said, well, something had to go further afield. You can't find it in Ohio. What drew me to the story of wild rice is that it is native to the entire Great Lakes region. But I had grown up in Ohio and spent part of my adulthood there. I had never seen or heard of it. I didn't know it was an indigenous American grain when I started the chapter. So it also sent me on a hunt to find wild rice near my own home of Cleveland. And did you? I did, but should I leave that as a cliffhanger? It's really a special story. I loved it.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. We'll save that one. Okay. Well, you know, I'm not going to talk about the other foods so because each story is so special and it's so great and it it does make wonderful reading. And it's important to realize things. So everything from dates to peanuts, I mean, you know, you've got so many of them, but why we said, you know, why did we think some of these um, foods were lost? And and the traditions certainly understand, but okay so they're they're on the wane we don't eat the same people aren't growing it people don't know about it um, and traditions get lost but what can we do about
2: it if anything send money. <laughs> 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 I know. It's so true though. And yeah. it's such a simple thing. Yeah. Okay. So every one of these foods, you know, they're disappearing for slightly different reasons, whether like with dates, it's because these were small family farms and maybe the second and third generations don't want to take over that farm or with wild rice, it's the rapid industrialization of waterfronts that's been happening since the 19th century, right. um, up until oil pipeline building today. Um, you know, these are major issues as far as water quality or just the sort of, um, just the terrain that wild rice likes to go in. So everything's a little bit different, but what you can do is that these are edible foods. And so you can, you know you can order uh, dates from a small farm in the Coachella Valley. I recommend Sam Cobb Farms. I also like Rancho Meloduco. There's also Shields. Also, if you're visiting the Coachella Valley, if you're going to say the Coachella Musical Festival, <laughs> okay. it's just a little bit of extra effort to go and visit these farms and and get to taste these unique American varieties of dates. Or you can order wild rice directly from tribal nations or from Heritage Foods, which is based right here in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Um, And they sell wild rice. They work directly with Ojibwe tribal nations in Minnesota um, to bring the real deal. So money being, you know, put directly into small farms or these indigenous nations is huge. Additionally, like I mentioned with Lummy Island Wild, there are organizations that are on the ground, you know, helping people and working to revive these foods and caretake them. And sometimes it's just best to sort of leave things to the experts, but certainly can also volunteer places as well too. So if any of the stories in the book inspire you, you know, do a little research and see what you can do to help. Or as I say to people too, you know, there are so many listings on the arc of taste. There's going to be something right in your backyard that you can engage with, whether that means buying from a small farmer, doing some volunteer work or donating to an organization that supports these foods. Yeah. I mean,
1: I thought that was a a very poignant. uh, statement that you made right in the beginning, that you know here there are the, all these foods on this uh, arc of taste, the international uh, list, and you don't have to go to the far reaches of some country you've never heard of before to, to look for this particular type of pea. I mean, you could. There are so many foods that you know, as you mentioned here, we don't even know about some of the foods in yeah. our own country. You know, that's that's great. You know, I think people can do a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of investigating. Um, when you were doing your research and when you were going out and working with the people and, and, uh, and finding out about these different foods, was there anything that was of a, a major surprise to you that you didn't expect to see or didn't expect to find out?
2: I mean, I think that that's what drew me to every single thing that I wrote about was there was something that really surprised me. It surprised me that wild rice could be found a lake around Lake Erie, but I had never heard it talked about or knew how to ID it. It surprised me that Hawaii has over forty different types of indigenous sugar cane, and each one is gorgeous and so unique. I mean, the colors on it ranges from you know lime green with pink stripes to deep black purple smoky colored. It's really, really amazing. I was shocked by how many apple varieties that we've lost. Um, I was amazed by the last chapter in the book about the Carolina runner peanut that was Genuinely believed to have been extinct since the 1930s, but was rediscovered. Um, that it, David Shields, we mentioned at the top of the episode, uh, called you know one seed, back, seed bank after another. He'd been searching for ten years until finally he found someone that had 24 peanuts of the Carolina runners, uh-huh. and they put them. In, they he talked them into sending 12. They put them in the ground, and it grew. Like that's incredible. It almost feels like a treasure hunt, right? right. So I think that every single chapter it's the surprise of it that pulled me in
1: that's that that is that's truly uh, in good investigative uh, research <laughs> thank you you get very involved in it too and you do you get very involved and i i think that we are all lucky that you do because you can spread the word too to the rest of the country. I just think. Yeah,
2: it's, and you, you get to come along with me without leaving your armchair. You know, right. you could travel the country.
1: Our fingers don't have to bleed and get sore and swollen.
2: Right? Oh my gosh. <laughs> no, but they can if you want them to. Yeah, right. I have to say that volunteering on that fishing boat was probably one of the most of amazing days of my life. It's incredibly beautiful up there. And if you don't want to volunteer, you know, you can still visit Lummi Island in season and you can donate and reach out to Lummi Island Wild and participate, uh, volunteer, here on one of the fishing gears too, if you want to, it's gorgeous up there. Uh, it's, you know, a couple hour drive North from Seattle. You then take a ferry, a car ferry over to the Island. Um, and it's absolutely stunning, stunning place to visit.
1: Well, it could be a travel book with the benefit of lost foods and traditions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, Sarah, thank you so much. It's always, always a treat to have you come on and, and talk about topics, whether it's your book or your research or or whatever. You you really do throw your whole self into it. And I, I thank you for that. It's it's really oh, thank great you. work. Good work. So I look oh, forward thanks. to what comes next. Right?
2: Yes, yes. And yeah. I'll have to come back for that too. I've missed you. Yes, indeed. Well,
1: and thank you for listening. Again, Sarah's new book is called Endangered Eating, America's Vanishing Foods. And it's published by W.W. W. Norton and Son. And it is out. Finally,
2: yes. Yeah, after five long years of working on it, it is out. Right, right. Well, thank you, and thank you for listening.
1: You've been listening to another Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.